Microservices is a widely adopted pattern for breaking an application up into pieces that can be well understood by the individual teams within the company. Microservices also allows these individual pieces to be scaled independently and updated in isolation. Past Software Engineering Daily episodes have covered the microservice architectures of Twitter, Netflix, Google, Uber, and other big companies. And in today's episode, I sit down with Raphael Schloming, who is building tools for microservices at DataWire. We get into discussions of why companies do microservices, what are the challenges that they have as they move into microservices, and other related topics. I hope you enjoy this episode. Raphael Schloming is the Chief Architect of DataWire. Raphael, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Great to be here. So we've had several episodes about companies who have adopted microservices in one way or another. And we've had companies like Twitter and Netflix and Google and Uber. And each of these companies have built their own way of doing microservices in-house. And so when a company like this wants to build microservices today... Are they starting from scratch in the same way that these companies like Netflix or Uber had to start from scratch maybe five or six years ago? Or has there been some standardization in the patterns and the technologies that are used? Uh, that's a very interesting question because there's definitely uh, there's definitely more technologies available. Um, and that is something that can help, but it's also something that can be confusing because, uh, you know, when a company like Netflix or Twitter started out down the microservices path, um, they didn't do it, uh, with a sort of a large re-architecture or they didn't, they didn't, you know, build a super sophisticated stack to begin with. They started out at a relatively simple place, um, and really almost started with more a methodology than, than an architecture and, ended up solving problems along the way. And so you take a look at something like the Netflix stack or the Twitter stack today, and you try and um, adopt that wholesale um, if you want to go sort of from not doing microservices to doing microservices, and you have uh, you have a very large, complicated suite of different technologies, um, some of which are solving problems that you aren't going, that you don't need to solve on day one. Um, and so in, you know, there's definitely a lot more out there you can leverage, but that also is, you know, means there's a lot more out there to confuse you and um, and to distract you from sort of the core set of uh, technology you need just to get started. Hmm. What are the situations, what's the typical situation that a company is in when it starts to build microservices? Well, we hear a bunch of different ones, but I, you know, I, I like to think of sort of two two categories of companies, right? You have sort of the first generation microservices companies that uh, that that sort of organically uh, evolved into a microservices architecture before the term even existed. Um, and, you know, the, and then you have companies today, uh, which are, uh, you know, because microservices has, you know, because the companies that's in that first generation were, were very successful, um, and, you know, you can sort of empirically observe how they're doing things and see, okay, there's something, there's something valuable here. They can put ship features, you know, 10 times faster than, than, you know, companies that are not using this sort of methodology, right? You have people trying to, 
um, replicate that by uh, by sort of replicating the output without necessarily understanding the journey that got uh, that 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 resulted in that sort of architecture. And so, um, yeah, you have a lot of people adopting it just because you know you have this sort of top-down mandate, right? You know, we need to do microservices in order to be relevant. Um, that's one reason. Uh, you have other reasons like, you know, the nature of your problem is gets sort of getting more and more distributed. You know, I, mean, I think you look at the average, uh, the average sort of commercial uh, business application uh, today, uh, and you know, compare it to something from ten or twenty years ago. Right, ten or twenty years ago, it was pretty much a database, you know, with a centralized chunk of business logic. Today, you have uh, applications that are much more dynamic uh, with with much more decentralized business logic, and so um, services becomes just a much much more natural paradigm to work with. Um, mm. So I think there's a variety of reasons, some good, some bad, that people are looking at uh, at adopting microservices. And we could stand to discuss some of those fundamental reasons about why microservices might be useful. Um, there are reasons around both the structure of the software teams and then there's also the way that we can work with technology effectively can you kind of describe these these two reasons like uh, there's there's the team structure aspect and then there's also the aspect of using the technology effectively deploying effectively that's kind of agnostic of how your team is structured can you describe these different areas yeah, so there's, uh, you know, this is one of the things I have come to appreciate much more over over the past few years, right? That the subtle nature of what a distributed system actually is, right? So classically, people think of distributed systems as, you know, okay, uh, you know, uh, maybe distributed over a network, uh, but um, you know, a system that you know might not be distributed over the network, but if it, you know, if, if it's worked on by a collection of people, right? The, and the people that work on it are distributed, right? Then um, you can you can have sort of that dimension of distribution as well. Um, and so all of these come into microservices. Um, and you know, I think fundamentally, what microservices uh, have proven to be successful at uh, on the people side of the equation is giving a way to take um, to take a continuous uptime cloud application that. And break it down into small enough pieces that lots of different teams can actually operate on the thing uh, without it, uh, without without it all breaking down. And that's one of the, I think, one of the motivating factors that you know cause it to be discussed, you know, at, at board levels in a lot of companies, right? Uh, the ability to sort of uh, achieve massive organizational scale uh, with microservices and have lots of independent little pieces of your application independently developed. You know, uh, you know that's something. Um, that's something I think uh, that sort of very much motivates that sort of top-down thing. Uh, but at the same time, you have this other dimension of okay, um, uh, there's sort of more operational and technical motivations, like like uh, you know, a, you know, you're ingesting a whole lot of data. Uh, you you are. Uh, you want to analyze that and extract sort of value-added information and present that to you know whoever your target customer is. Right, a lot of businesses you know follow that basic template, um, and uh, you know in that in that style of application, you have very different demands for very different pieces, uh, different 
different technology frameworks you want to use uh, at different sort of stages of your data processing pipeline, um, and you have different levels of scale you need to support uh, at different stages of your sort of data processing pipeline. So if you if you very very coarsely view you know um, you know a lot of modern SaaS businesses as this sort of data processing pipeline, uh, then you can see sort of the a, a, a technical motivation for uh, breaking it up into multiple services that can be scaled independently and written with different uh, with different technology choices. Mm-hmm. So a company usually starts with this monolithic structure and builds microservices that peel away that functionality. We've talked about this a number of times on Software Engineering Daily. What are the challenges that have to be overcome to go through that transition of stripping away functionality into microservices? Um, honestly, I think the biggest challenge we've seen uh, with companies that are trying to uh, that are trying to actively make a transition is thinking of it as a refactor or as an architectural like shift, um, uh, as opposed to thinking as opposed to just you know uh, taking taking it as, you know, a way to extend your system, um, right? Because as soon as you think about, as soon as you think about, you know, refactoring a monolith, right, that means you have, you know, probably, you know, thousands, maybe millions of lines of code that you need to, you know, uh, accommodate in your new system. And, you know, you get into something which is a multi-year, extremely slow sort of re-architect when, you know, a lot of the motivating, uh, a, a lot of, the stories that you hear about the first generation microservices companies were motivated actually in, in a much, much simpler way. It's, you know, you need one easily isolatable thing, throw it up as a separate service, tie the two together, and it was actually the expedient path, not the slow re-architect. Uh, so, I, you know, I think, I think thinking uh, in terms of extending your monolith rather than refactoring it is probably one of the biggest things, I would say. Hmm. Interesting. So as that process happens, whether you're extending the monolith or refactoring and and breaking it up, um, however you're thinking about it, eventually you need your services to be able to communicate with each other. And this sounds kind of simple, but what are the types of infrastructure that you need in order to have your microservices communicate effectively with each other? Um, Probably one of the Core, uh, one of the core services you need is, is service discovery, right? Simply, uh, and, you know, it's uh, you can start without it. You can use DNS. You can use you know uh, host names, hard coded file names, uh, and things like that. But you will very quickly um, get to a point where you want some more dynamic solution. Uh, you know, the ability to you know as soon as the server is launched, know how to actually talk to it. And as soon as the server disappears, have it taken out of the list of valid services to talk to. Um, and so service discovery is is sort of uh, probably at the core of uh, and one of the early services that, that pretty much every um, everyone running microservices at scale uh, has to build or buy. Mm. So service discovery, how does that typically get, or at what point does that get worked into the system like do i start building my services and then when they need to interact with each other and when they need to dynamically scale then i uh then i build out service discovery infrastructure so that i can 
uh, keep track of servers that are spinning up and ones that are spinning down and have those be addressable as soon as they are spun up? Um, that, uh, uh, we've seen multiple, you know, we've seen people bring in service discovery at multiple points. Um, it depends a little bit on sort of the nature of your problem, right? If you're, uh, if you have a set of sort of highly available, uh, if you have a set of services that all need to be highly available in order for your application to function, then you'll need to bring in, you know, a combination of service discovery and, um, very likely client side load balancing um, much earlier, uh, but you know there there are other applications where they might have hundreds of services, but none of them. And, you know, it's not critical that necessarily all of them are up at the same time. If they're doing you know more batch or offline processing, in which case you can go for longer without doing that. Hmm. Um, but it, you know, I, I would say there's there's a set of three uh, three or three or four early services uh, that I think everyone kind of runs into the need for pretty early on. Um, one is some kind of logging. Uh, well, one is service discovery. The other is some kind of logging and then some kind of uh, configuration. Mm. Um, you know, the, those are kind of the early infrastructure-level services that, uh, that pretty much everyone, uh, everyone uh, runs into early on, even if it's in a different order. How does the logging and monitoring tooling stack need to change when you get services that start to communicate with each other? Uh, well, so the, I think the, the big thing is um, a lot of the existing logging and monitoring uh, solutions are aimed at, you know, server health as opposed to service health, right, or collecting server logs. Um, and when you're building your application, you know, when you're assembling your application out of a bunch of services, right, um, if a single server only represents a small piece of the overall application, then just monitoring that one server actually gives you much, right, and, and just having the logs from that one server actually gives you a much more fragmented view of your end-to-end -end application as a whole, right? And so, you know, and you can run into this. Uh, you know, in as few as, you know, five or ten services, um, and obviously when you get into hundreds of services, um, this is a huge problem. Uh, and so I think, uh, I think, you know, the, the logging and monitoring stack when, when you're uh, moving to microservices or when you're looking at microservices applications, it really needs to be much more service-oriented, right, give you a picture not just of the health of services as opposed to individual servers, but also um, a picture of uh, sort of the health of your network of services, right? Because, you know, just because an individual service is running just fine and perfectly happy, it doesn't mean it, that it's necessarily doing what it needs to to keep the rest of your application um, functioning. When a company scales, they're building out this microservices stuff. They have a number of teams working independently of each other, and these teams are pushing updates to their respective services independently of each other. What kinds of tooling need to be in place in order to have people safely and independently update their services? Well, there's definitely uh, there's definitely a number of resilience patterns that people end up using. So um, Hystrix is sort of the, the famous uh, circuit breaker implementation that Netflix started. Uh, but you know, circuit breakers in general are something uh, that you see um, people use uh, in order to in order to protect um, 
in order to protect uh, services from from downstream changes. Um, and I think actually circuit breakers are one of the uh, one of the things that are not so well understood. Um, I think people tend to commonly use circuit breakers uh, to deal with more like infrastructure or with like uh, network or machine failures, right? So the, you know, circuit breakers give you basically a kind of client-side failover, client-side retry. And so if a machine goes out, you get, um, you know, you, you, you will fail fast instead of trying to keep on talking to that same uh, dead machine. Um, and so they give you some resilience uh, if, 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 you know, a part of your application is not functioning. Um, but I think one of uh, one of the original motivating uh, use cases um, for circuit breakers was actually not necessarily dealing with machine uh, machine or network failures, uh, but also dealing with integration issues, right? Because one of the scary things about microservices is, right, instead of all, you know. All your code is implement. All your business logic is centralized in one big monolith. Um, then you know I can run a compiler across all my code, and and you know I can get type checks and all you know across all my API boundaries and all that stuff. Right? It, instead, my business logic is decentralized into a set of services communicating over network APIs. Um, if I push a change in a service, uh, that change might actually uh, you know break. Even even though it's you know completely tested and internally self consistent, that change might accidentally break you know half my uh, my uh, clients that depend on me, right? And so you know th this is an example of sort of right, and you don't find this out until you actually push uh, push a change like that into production. Um, and so uh, one of the things circuit breakers can do is actually uh, cope with that situation. Uh, because you know, if, if you integrate the circuit breaker usage of the circuit breaker into your business logic, you can recover uh, not only from network or machine failure, but if you get back a, a, a response from an updated service that's uh, that's actually you know some kind of some kind of malformed or uh, response or something you just didn't expect or can't cope with, and then you, the client of that service, blows up uh, in trying to deal with that. Uh, that uh, the response from that new version, right? Circuit breakers can actually catch that class of bug as well, um, and that's one of the things that creates the isolation necessary to do those independent updates uh, safely. Hmm. Interesting. So, what what does Hystrix do in that type? Of, I mean, can you describe more what Hystrix does specifically? Because you kind of described the circuit breaker pattern, um, which is kind of allows you to handle failures of a single service in the request chain. Maybe you mm -hmm. could describe what Hystrix does. You could describe how, more generally, how you minimize the impact of a single failure in a request chain of a bunch of microservices. Yeah, so um, yeah. So Hystrix uh, and sort of circuit breakers that can be integrated, any circuit breakers that can be integrated with client-side business logic, in general, what they do is they run a chunk of code, right, a chunk of business logic. That business logic can do a remote call, um, and if that, and, right, and it can process the results of that remote call, right. And when that business log, and it has a catch-all around that, and and if that fails for any reason, and that re that can be because the network is down, it can be because the ma the machine uh, that you're talking to, you're trying to talk to, is wedged, and it can be because uh, the business logic that processes the result of that remote call um, blows up. Um, 
So if anything in that chunk of business logic fails, uh, then the circuit breaker will say, okay, this failure happened while I was talking to this uh, remote party, therefore I'm actually not going to try and talk to that remote party again. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, I mean, there, there's different, uh, there's different, um, there's different uh, ways of managing, you know, what you do there, you know, whether you, you can blacklist that for a certain amount of time um, and, and talk to another, uh, another instance instead. But basically it, 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 it protects you around, you know, protects your business logic around these critical interaction points and, and gives you a way to say, okay, um, you know, whatever thing I was talking to, it's not doing what it needs to do for me. And, you know, I'm going to fall back onto something that I actually know works. Hmm. Right. So, um, at DataWire, you are building products around microservices. And the first is this microservices development kit. Yep. So we've been talking about microservices in the abstract. Why don't you talk about what problem you're trying to solve with this microservices development kit? Yeah, so uh, what we've basically done is, you know, taking a look at uh, at the microservices, um, and so the emergent microservices architecture that all of that first generation set of companies has reached because it's it's even though they all started from a different point it, they they kind of converged on the same the same style of solution um, and really taken uh, the uh, you know pared that down to what the what the core pieces are that you need to get started and those core pieces consist of um, a set of infrastructural services you know service discovery uh, tracing um, being sort of the, the two and uh, being the two most important, um, and then uh, and um, a uh, a software library that interacts with those services and lets you get started. Um, you know, th this is one of the this is one of the things that makes um, sort of engineering microservices interesting, right? Um, most people think about network services as you know something you just you just uh, uh, access over uh, REST APIs, and that's it. You don't need to worry about client libraries. Uh, but it turns out that um, in order to make a microservices architecture work, um, you need not only a set of infrastructural services, starting with service discovery, but you also need um, actually relatively intelligent clients uh, that do, you know, that have smart behavior built into the endpoints. Right. So it's really the combination of the, those smart endpoints plus the infrastructural services. Uh, that we're providing, the MDK is is providing that smart endpoint, uh, and it's integrated into uh, it comes you know in multiple languages, integrated into a bunch of different uh, frameworks like Flask uh, to let you really really easily get started with microservices. Hmm. So, at what point in the software development? I mean, we, we've been talking about like when you start to build your microservices stuff if you've got. Uh, a monolith and it's getting successful. Uh, at what point would people start using the microservices toolkit that DataWire provides? So, like, is is it is it right when they're starting to break up their monolith into microservices? I think you can use it at any point. Right? I mean, there's a lot of reasons that it can be useful to build uh, a feature as a separate microservice. Right? We've heard you know you don't necessarily need a large amount of unmanageable code in order to start thinking about. Uh, creating multiple teams, right? We've heard about applications that 
Um, you know, they they're what uh, file upload is a great example we heard about, right? Where you know that they have an upload. Right, uh, you you might have an application, right? And you know you're uploading files. If somebody actually uploads a really large file, um, you know, uh, I think in this particular case it was into a Rails uh, a Rails application, right? Occasionally someone would try and up upload a gigabyte file that would cause the Rails uh, the Rails app to fall over. Um, and result in outages, right? And so breaking that out into a separate service, um, you know, that uh, that's isolated from the, the main uh, chunk of your business logic can be a really simple and straightforward thing to do um, and doesn't, you know, uh, doesn't need to be motivated necessarily by a, uh, a uh, you know, huge monolithic code base. Um, oh. You know, so it's, you know, I think part, right, this, this goes back to the point about about sort of, Rearchitecting versus just extending, right? As long as you think about microservices as this massive rearchitecture, it's going to be slow and painful to get started, right? Um, but if you think of it as, you know, oh, microservices is actually about expressing, you know, about distributing my business logic um, and expressing it, you know, a network of services, then uh, I can just easily take what I have and extend it, right? I just need the, some basic tools for safely extending. Uh, what I have, um, and you can, you know, the other, the other one, of, one of the powerful things that opens up is the ability, right? Because you, it's cheap to to try a new feature as a separate service. Um, you know, you can take a much more experimental approach to building stuff. You can, you know, try implementing a feature as a separate service. It doesn't work. You know, uh, throw it away, and you haven't you haven't lost all that much. Right. So. For many years, we had this this logging and monitoring infrastructure that was not very sophisticated. Like many, maybe people did stuff like Nagios, or you could tail some logs from a shell. Um, and you know, other, other than that, your options might have been kind of limited for you know maybe uh, like ten years ago, or or even seven years ago, or so. But at some point, we started to get diagnostic tools that were getting better because. Uh, you know the, the troubleshooting was uh, was too complex, and so um, what are some approaches that you know as, as you're building tooling around microservices? What are some approaches that you're looking at that are trying to simplify the problem of root cause analysis or debugging in a microservices environment? Yeah, so um, that's uh, that's really at the core of what our uh, uh, sort of logging and tracing. Uh, uh, service does right, so and it's one of the reasons you know I mentioned before you know uh, about uh, sort of the endpoints needing to be smart. This is a great example of that, right? So you know the the service uh, the log service just ingests uh, application level log messages, uh, but what the uh, what the MDK will do is actually annotate those log messages with not only a request ID, um, so that you can actually take all of the Different, um, the different, you know, uh, dependent requests that get triggered by one, you know, requested by one sort of overall application level request. You can not only correlate those together, but the MDK also tracks something called uh, a Lampert clock, which is sort of a simple form of a vector clock, um, and that lets it actually uh, uh, reconstruct the causal order of the log messages uh, that get ingested into the system. So you can. Basically, uh, think of it as okay, right? 
Um, you know, one of the nice things about developing in Monolith is you have a single linear log for everything that happens. You have a single linear application level log for everything that happens in the context of servicing a single request, right? If servicing a single request in a microservices environment involves, you know, uh, hundreds of requests, uh, you know, going across your service network, then you don't have that anymore. You have that fragmented view, right? By passing around uh, this this Lamper clock uh, and trace ID from uh, from request to request, um, and having the logic, uh, you know, in the NDK to actually update that, we can actually reconstruct that single uh, that you know single linear log of uh, you know that you lose when you go from the monolith to uh, to services. Now, how does that compare to something like OpenZipkin, which is a distributed tracing framework based on the Google Dapper paper? So, um, at one level, it is, uh, uh, you know, conceptually, it's similar in that, you know, both of them are, are reconstructing causality. Um, Zipkin is more uh, geared at, uh, at performance as opposed to um, debugging, right? Uh, so, you know, Zipkin will give you sort of uh, a sampled, um, a sampled uh, sort of uh, view of the, the performance and the latency introduced by different services. Uh, and what we offer, uh, you know, will actually give you the full trace. And, you know, it's almost like a distributed stack trace whenever there's a bug. Okay, I see. Um, so, and DataWire itself is open source. Mm-hmm. What is the the business model, or how how does your how does your business work, or what's the go to market strategy? Um, so the the MDK is open source. Um, you know the services uh, uh, the services that it interacts with are open source as well, and you can run those locally. Um, but we also run them. You know we offer them in hosted form, uh, so you can you know get started really easily. You don't have to take on all the the additional operational uh, overhead of running those things yourself. I'd like to talk a little bit about history because you have been in the industry for a while. You worked on the AMQP, which is the Advanced Message Queuing Protocol. And I think this is worth touching on just because it kind of provides some historical concept con- uh, context for how uh, how things have evolved and and um, you know how things are are being done differently today in terms of uh, architecture and why that is. So, what was the purpose of AMQP? Uh, so, the purpose of AMQP, to be quite uh, literal, was to actually uh, to actually uh, help uh, um, kill the stranglehold that MQ series had. Uh, IBM's MQ series had on um, the messaging industry. Uh, banks would literally uh, pay IBM exorbitant amounts of money uh, because of their dependence on MQ series. Uh, and banks, uh, you know, uh, or you know, uh, used MQ series, you know, to function as a message bus, right? That uh, that you know connected various pieces of the you know the different um, the different applications that they developed. And so you, you can, in some ways, think of this as a precursor to some of the patterns people use for microservices. 
um, right? Because there's, you know, people uh, often talk about event, uh, event buses in the context of microservices as a way to, um, as a way to, uh, as a way to wire together uh, distributed business logic. Um, and so, uh, you know, you can, you can think of MQP as well as a messaging protocol that supports building a distributed uh, event bus um, as in some ways as a precursor. Uh, I think one of the, uh, I think one of the, one of the interesting things that has happened as sort of microservices have gotten more mainstream is that MQP and messaging are an asynchronous messaging in general, while, you know, banks are very comfortable with, or at least, you know, a good chunk of the developers that work in banks are very comfortable with asynchronous, uh, asynchronous messaging patterns. That's something that, uh, has never been as mainstream, right? I think, I think, uh, sort of a lot of, uh, develop, developers even today, a lot of, a lot of developers coding business logic are just much more comfortable thinking in terms of RPC. Um, and so what you, what you see being developed in modern microservices stacks, um, and with things like, like, uh, circuit breakers, uh, you know, it's really kind of, um, a way to bring some of the same resilience patterns that you get, um, with, you know, brokered asynchronous messaging, right? The ability to update business logic, you know, for a live system on the fly without actually impacting production, right? You, you see the ability, right? You see that ability being introduced in modern microservices stacks, but for an RPC style, uh, sort of, uh, development model as opposed to, you know, uh, forcing, you know, the, the developers to think in terms of asynchronous messaging in order to get those benefits. Mm. Can you provide more of a contrast for what the distributed architecture looked like at a company uh, in the days when AMQP was created uh, relative to the microservices stuff that we're seeing today? Like, what are the fundamental differences between those distributed architecture patterns? Um, I think, uh, I think some of the, well, I think some of the fundamental differences uh, actually boil down to the different kinds of coupling, right? So I think in today's, uh, in today's microservices applications, you see pieces, um, you see pieces that are developed separately, brought together, and yes, they're connected over the network, but they're in the same data center, um, and they aren't necessarily, you know, that, you know, as as far apart from each other, uh, you know, when they're deployed. Um, whereas, you know, a, a, a bank running at global scale needs to be able to, um, needs to be able to, uh, you know, uh, accurately execute transactions, you know, distributed transactions that span, you know, the entire world, right? You need to be able to debit uh, from an account on one side of the world and, and be very sure that you can credit the account uh, on the other side of the world. Um, and, you know, you can't assume that, that you know, those two accounts are going to be in the same data center or anything like that. So you, so you have sort of, uh, you have sort of, uh, this this wider you know wider scale of separation I guess uh, is maybe a, a way to put, put it and you know you, you, you have sort of the you know um, you're kind of forced to adopt the same sort of eventual consistency models that you see in a lot of modern cloud applications as well hmm. um, uh, you know so I think 
you know, and I think uh, I think one of the things one of the things about banking in general is you know uh, the basic like protocols and communication patterns that uh, banks use actually originated even before computers, right? They originated back when you know people had to ride horses uh, in order to you know pass information from one side of the world to the other. Right, and so you get these patterns. They're very, very resilient to extremely poor communication uh, and extremely high latency communication, um, and that's just natural in the way the business domain works. Um, so, hmm. so like the way of processing a transaction you're talking about? Yeah, like a, a financial transaction uh, as opposed to a database transaction. Interesting. Uh, now, what are the lessons that you take away from? you know, your experiences working on AMQP when you're building stuff for microservices these days? Um, the lessons. Well, uh, one of the big lessons is that um, it uh, is that uh, when it comes to sort of defining a distributed system, right, um, or, you know, when it comes to defining protocol, really, right, uh, how much you can do with that protocol, how much you can accomplish with that protocol depends a lot on how smart the endpoints can be. Um, right? So all the stuff, you know, all the stuff I was describing about circuit breakers, um, you know, and how, you know, they, you can sort of temporarily blacklist misbehaving nodes and, and things like that. Uh, and, you know, this depends on really a client uh, for a discovery service and a client that is well integrated into your application framework, right? And so... Um, uh, that, that that's actually a really really smart client, as opposed to you know, in, to contrast to a fairly dumb client like you know Curl, which just does you know it's a stateless HTTP request. Um, and so certain problems need smarter clients, and and uh, when those clients need to be implemented in a lot of different languages, it can be really really hard to create sort of um, a standard solution uh, because um, it, 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 it's a lot of work to actually implement uh, implement those and get them to behave consistently in a lot of different languages and um, you know we had exactly that problem with MQP right asynchronous messaging requires a smart stateful client um, and ultimately as a messaging protocol you're trying to connect business logic business logic is implemented by developers. Developers like the language they're working in. They want a first-class client uh, of, you know, a message bus in whatever their favorite language is. Uh, and, you know, every large organization has, you know, umpteen different languages in use at any given point. And so, um, you know, it, it really made me start thinking about, um, about protocols as, you know, even protocols that we generally think about as connecting machines, it really started making me think about them as connecting people, um, right? Because, you know, they might not, might not be people in the sense we think of it, you know, in terms of email where you're directly connecting uh, human humans typing text, but uh, you're connecting humans typing code and the human factors of, you know, code that might be buggy, code that might be in a different language, um, all of that stuff becomes very primary. Now you mentioned the the fact that you often have these services that are uh, in different written in different languages. They have to communicate with each other, though. Um, what 
what is typically used to bus material between services that are written in different languages? The biggest thing we see is HTTP and JSON or uh, WebSockets and JSON. And there's a lot of other uh, sort of, well, there, there's some a lot of options for providing um, uh, uh, for providing more structure, both on top of that, um, you know, with tools like Swagger or, um, or JSON Schema, um, and those can be useful. But, the, the, you know, I think it's just because I think the most common thing we see uh, uh, is just because it's so easy and universally accessible is, is HTTP and JSON. Um, I think once you, once you get to a certain scale, you will inevitably want to move beyond that. Uh, like, you know, using something that maybe more performant, maybe has better support for IDEs or, you know, uh, providing like structured tabulation, things like that. So there's a bunch of options like Thrift, uh, gRPC, um, those kinds of uh, sort of more structured RPC, uh, RPC tools. But even those generally need to interoperate well with HTTP and JSON. So, you know, even when you get to the point of sort of for performance reasons, uh, needing or for performance or for organizational scale reasons, needing something that's sort of a more structured uh, way to connect your services like that, um, you still need to, you still, nine times out of 10, will need to inter interoperate, ah, interop with HTTP and JSON, uh, at least at the edge of your application, because you know, you'll need to expose APIs uh, over the uh, broader internet. And you want to think about, okay, uh, I don't want to use something internally, which is super high performance, super fast, but then makes me recode and hand translate in order to actually get uh, JSON over HTTP. Yeah. Okay. Well, Raphael, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I look forward to seeing what else comes out of DataWire and the microservices tooling that you're building up uh, in that ecosystem. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a, a great conversation. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.